Gareth Jones on speed. News plot. It has just been announced that at this weekend's Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort, that Max Verstappen will start from the pit lane and will also be required to do one lap more than all the other 19 competitors. This has been done by the FIA to give the other drivers a chance of at least finishing second. Hello, welcome back to Gareth Jones on Speed after our three-week summer break. I hope you enjoyed Punk as F1, which has been scoring some record download figures for the show, I'm very pleased to say. Joining me for this episode of the show from his usual basement in southwest London, Zog. Good afternoon. And joining us later on, the second half of the show, from his part of South London, to talk road cars, will be Alex Goy. But right now, here to join us and talk about F1 is Sarah Leach. Hiya, Sarah. Hello, how you doing? Good. I hear it's quietened down outside your window at the moment. Tell us why it's been noisy there this week. Well, I do live in the heart of Notting Hill Carnival, so that was a very noisy weekend, as you can imagine. But... A lot of fun had by all, and I could see how much a lot of people enjoyed it. When I say a lot of people, it was like at least one million people per day that came through the hood. Wow. So record numbers after no carnival for a couple of years. So very exciting for a lot of carnival goers, I'd say. But, you know, a bit scary at times. There was a lot of sort of interesting things that happened in terms of safety. But most people came away unscathed. I'm embarrassed to say, despite having lived in London for some 41 years, I've never been to Carnival. No. Only because... That's outrageous. Well, it's West. That's outrageous. Correct. It's it's West London. And you know what it's like in North London, trying to get to West London, it's easier for me to fly to Paris. It's lovely in West London. You know, that's why we (laughs) hang out here. We have great stuff like Nautical Carnival. uh, Absolutely. mm -hmm. How are you, Z? You had a good few weeks while we've been on respite? Uh, I've been enjoying a new e-bike. I've got a electrically assisted bicycle. I decided it would be a good extra London transport option. And it's Brilliant. I'm very impressed, Jock. Well, you know, I cycle, as you know. Yeah. But the bicycle that I have for the last couple of years keeps trying to kill me. <laughs> and my various solutions for stopping it trying to kill me, I won't go into the details to do with why it is, how it is, and why I'm so bloody-minded about not adopting a really simple fix. But, yeah, anyway, long story short, a refurbished, London-built, electrically-assisted bicycle is my new ride about town and yeah it's great it gives just the right level of assistance so that it's making all of the trips that i want to take that much easier that uh, you know there are a few journeys that are just far enough that i might tend to think oh actually no i'll do that another day if i was going on the other bike you know i, I i'm feeling just lazy enough not to make that trip this solves the problem it pushes me into making more of the trips but because it's assisted not fully electric you're still getting workouts we're getting the exercise that you want to get yeah it's great i have to say that now that i'm over 60 well over 60 now 60 and one i get one of those freedom passes which means that I don't have to pay for any public transport, train, bus or tube in the whole greater London area. As far as Reading and as far Mm. as, well, not quite Ipswich, but east side. (laughs) Which means I haven't driven a car in London for ages. So what's the status of your 
car, your Porsche. Have you got it back? Have you given up on it? I haven't got it back yet. Don't particularly want to talk about it right now, so let's move on. But no, that's that's not an entirely happy story. Oh dear. All right, well, let's talk about another slightly unhappy, well, certainly complicated story. Now, here's all my cards on the table. The point at which we are recording this program, which is some quarter past six on a Tuesday night. Now, we normally record the show on a Monday. But I said, let's wait till Tuesday, because hopefully the Formula One Contract Recognition Board will have met and the decision on what the hell is happening with Oscar Piastri and Alpine and McLaren and all the potential driver changes that are going to happen as a result of that would have played out by now. But... I just checked online the second before we started recording and there's still no news of the Piastri situation. But let's see what we can discuss in terms of what we understand and the speculation around it. First of all, Vettel left Aston Martin, creating a space there. Alonso immediately jumped and took the offer of a drive at Aston Martin because in his opinion of from what we've heard from Alonso, the contract that Alpine were offering Alonso was no more than a year because he's so old and he wanted something a bit more long-term. So he jumped to Aston Martin. Alpine believed that they were okay at this point because they had a driver in the wings who's been part of the Renault-Alpine driver program for years and would slot in perfectly alongside Esteban Ocon. But immediately that Alpine announced Piastri was going to drive for them, Piastri countered this with a Twitter statement saying that, no, that's not the case. I'm off somewhere else. Bloody heck, what a flipping mess. Now, Sarah, I would imagine that from your point of view, what you're ultimately hoping for is that the Piastri thing says, no, Piastri is free to go to McLaren, and therefore Daniel Ricciardo gets to go to Alpine. Do you think that's going to happen? Because I don't. Well, I think it's actually a possibility. I don't think Alpine have ruled out a driver like Daniel Ricciardo. I have heard they've got their eyes on Pierre Gasly and have started talking to him. But I wouldn't be surprised if Alpine are a bit put off by Piastri now. No surprise with all the games that he's playing. But if he wants to go to McLaren, maybe they should just let him go because that would be a very interesting move for Piastri given that, you know, Daniel Ricciardo didn't necessarily perform in their car. So who knows what the attraction is for Piastri to be over at McLaren Mm. rather than Alpine who appear to be doing a lot better. So I do think, you know, it is a possibility. Anything's possible, really. I've seen that Mick Schumacher is also being released from the Ferrari Driver Academy after this season and... Esteban Ocon has come out and said that he wouldn't mind having Schumacher as a teammate there at Alpine because I'm just not sure from memory or actually I know so that in the past he's got a fractured relationship with Pierre Gasly from go-karting years ago apparently but a double French lineup would be good for Alpine so plenty of options there for Alpine and, and I think yeah as the drama unfolds and they get the result from the board about this contract palaver shall we say it is a palaver isn't it yeah yeah yeah, i know all will be revealed so yeah fun and games over there at formula one so yeah 
very interesting times. <laughs> Zog, I won't quote what we always say about making predictions is very difficult, particularly about the future. But how do you think this is going to play out? A wise person wouldn't speculate too strongly before the contract recognition board comes back in. But I mean, it strikes me Alpine are in a rather unfortunate position that they're two front runners, it appears, for their now vacant seat. Are two drivers who both kind of snubbed them quite publicly. Ricardo walked away from Alpine after Alpine had brought him into the fold. When they were called Renault, we should say that. Yes, sorry, quite right. And he made a medical commitment to him and, and planned on Ricardo as part of the new team that they were building up and were expecting success with. Then Ricardo decided that he wanted to switch to McLaren, that that was a better prospect for him. And then Piastri has, uh, as you say, Gareth, very publicly corrected Alpine's statement about him driving for them. You know, as soon as they said, we will have Piastri driving for next year, he rather boldly put out a statement saying, no, I won't. Um, mm. It's interesting that he was so public about it also, rather than this just being a behind the scenes thing and three or four days later or two weeks later we suddenly hear that oh actually Piastri's going to McLaren so Alpine must be feeling a little bit are done by at the moment they must be feeling a little bit uh, like the kid who's not getting picked for sports at (laughs) school sports day Mm. yeah Um, yeah 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 it's a very good analogy I think a lot of the focus on this has been on Piastri's reaction to this situation people have been commenting well he's been on the Renault Alpine young driver program for many years they've invested a great amount in him he was promised to drive as soon as one became available he was their standby driver for 12 months you kind of expect someone to go along with that that's generally always how it works in Formula One unless take for instance the case of Ocon where a drive wasn't available because he was part of the Mercedes driver program and he was released from Mercedes to go and drive for Renault. So it's still in the control of the people who have supported you. And you would expect Piastri to stay with the people who've supported him. And he's getting blamed for this. This is what I'm getting to. People are saying, oh, Piastri this, Piastri that. No, no. I blame Mark Webber. Sorry, Sarah. I know he's an Oz mm. and we love him. But Mark Webber is Oscar Piastri's manager. And I don't think any driver does anything in Formula One unless it is sanctioned by a more experienced person in charge of them. Now, as I understand it, the reason that Alpine announced Piastri was going to drive for them was a legal manoeuvre. They had to do that to make it public that they had control over him. This is what I've read. Sorry, you disagree, Zog? I was reading into what you said there that the statement they made was something that they had to do legally in order to bind Piastri to his contract, in order to kind of flip the switch that says, right, this bit of the contract is now active. But as I understand it, and neither of us have read the contract, and uh, I think neither of us would really quite understand the detail of it, even if we did. My understanding is that that may not have been enough to secure Alpine's right to Piastri's driving next year. They may have thought it was enough, but in order for the clauses of the contract, the conditional clauses of the contract to come into effect, that would ensure that Piastri would have to drive for Renault. They needed to have done more for him. I think they needed to have offered him a drive by a certain point this year. That was one of the things I had in mind. Anyway. That's often the case, isn't it? Yeah. There is clearly a disagreement, though, about whether Alpine did enough. Um, That's what the Contract Recognition Board is looking at. 
I suspect that if the board rules that Alpine's contract with Piastri is binding and that he can't go to McLaren, I mean, Alpine may be feeling a bit miffed, but I'm sure they'd still want Piastri to drive for them. They haven't invested all that money in him because they think there's a good chance he'll be a terrific driver. They're very, very confident that he's a driver that could deliver for them. And I'm sure they'll be prepared to sweep under the carpet to put behind them a little bit of bad blood and a bit of confusion over this, I think. I disagree. Really? Yeah, yeah. You think they'd go for Ricardo over Piastri if... Um... No, I don't think Alpine will go for Ricardo. Sorry, Sarah. I love him as much as you do. Is that because he sort of burnt a bit of a bridge when he left them for McLaren? No, I think it's because Ricardo is viewed in the paddock now as someone who's had three chances to prove himself. Mm. He was at Red Bull and Max made Ricardo look slow. To be fair, Max makes pretty much everybody look slow. Ricardo went to Renault. He did reasonably well at Renault, but not fantastically. And then when he went to McLaren, Norris made him look subpar, I think. Let's put it that way. And again, Norris is an exemplar. He's an incredible talent. So I know how vicious the Piranha Club is. You have one chance, you have two chances. Sorry, mate. So I don't think there's anybody on the grid who rates Ricardo as the best option now. Now, we know he's a great racer. He's a great overtaker. But he seems damaged, in my opinion, now. He seems not the man that he used to be. It's been a long time since he's impressed. He had that fantastic win for McLaren. Was that Monza? Was that? Monza last year, yeah. Uh, yeah, But apart from that, he's always behind Norris. And, you know, the way that Formula One works, you always want a driver, if you've got a great driver, that your next driver has to threaten that driver to either make them perform or perform better than that driver. And I don't think Daniel's in that position at the moment. Now, what are his other options? There's talk of a possible seat at Haas for him. I don't think he'll want to go there. There's talk of a possible switch with Toro Rosso. Sorry, they're not called Toro Rosso anymore. What are they called? They're called Alpha Tauri now. Alpha Tauri, yeah. I don't think that works for the whole Red Bull driver programme. I think they would be more likely to bring Liam Lawson in from the Red Bull junior programme, who's doing incredible work in F2 at the moment, or perhaps even take a gamble on Colton Herter from IndyCar at the moment. They've got loads of options. They don't need to take a driver, even if it costs them nothing. Daniel could drive for them for free because he's getting paid 12 million this year, allegedly, which is what we hear, by McLaren not to drive at all. Sarah, I think Danny's hey, stuffed. I could not drive that yeah. car for the next year, McLaren. <laughs> I know, really, I'm seriously. I, I can totally do as good a job as, as Danny no Rick of not driving that car. <laughs> Fair point. Sarah, what we want to happen and what we hope will happen and what is likely to happen are often very very different things you're still holding out Mm. that Danny Rick will get a drive in F1 that's what he says he wants 
I wouldn't say I'm holding out, but I wouldn't be surprised if something falls into place. It could be a matter of a person like Alonso. Yeah, maybe he does take a year out and do another series and he does come back. Or maybe once he's out, he's sort of always out. But Alonso's probably an exception to the rule. Yes, Not yeah. a lot of F1 drivers have been able to come back once they've left. True. Although, um, what's his name? Um, he came back and took over a few races when some of the boys last year got COVID. Nico Hulkenberg. Nico Hulkenberg. And yeah. he is a very good driver. You know, for Renault, didn't he? He covered for Racing Point, actually. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, Racing exactly. Point, Aston Martin. Forgive me. Yeah. Who knows what will happen? It is all very much in the air. And a lot of Daniel's opportunities will probably play out as other sort of chess moves happen with other yeah. drivers. So yeah. I think he'll, he's probably just ha- going to have to wait and see. But he's probably exploring all options, I'd yeah. say. You'd have to. So otherwise, if you put all your eggs in one basket. I would welcome Danny Rick in IndyCar. I think that would be the sort of reset that he needs. I'd love to see him in IndyCar. I know he's a big NASCAR fan. And I think he'd be really happy in NASCAR. It's knockabout, you know, he's a knockabout kind of guy. I don't watch NASCAR, but I might start watching it if Danny Rick mm. was there. There are other options for him as well. McLaren could put him sideways into Formula E, but I don't think he wants that. He said repeatedly he wants to stay in Formula One. But quite frankly, this is all out of his control at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, maybe he'd be well advised to, you know, if he could get a role with a team as a you know reserve test driver, perhaps. That would keep him in various loops, keep him closer to the sport, and that would make it a bit easier for him to come back after a year if a space opens up for him because I don't believe he's lost that much form I just don't believe he's fundamentally that much slower than Lando Norris than we're seeing in the comparative times in the McLaren at the moment I can't account for quite why there's so much of a gap so much of the time how much there may be some mental issues in there, how much there is a fundamental thing to do with Ricardo and the car, that the car just isn't right for him and his relationship with that particular vehicle isn't the same that Lando has. I don't know, but I am convinced that a lot of that difference doesn't have to do with Ricardo's raw speed and his talent. And that raw speed and talent will be an asset to a lot of teams, plus the fact that he's such a PR yeah. Uh, win for a team. Yeah. You know, I think there's a reasonable chance that if he wants to stay in F1, that some path will open up for him. It may not be a race winning car, but yeah, let's see. I'm sure optimistic that we haven't seen the last of Ricardo after this year. Coming back to Piastri, which is really the pivot around which all this rotates, I think even if the contract recognition board recognise that Alpine's contract with Piastri is sound and that he needs to drive for them they will reject him because it's clear that McLaren want Piastri and Mm -hmm. that gives value to Piastri to Alpine they can sort of sell his contract to them also isn't there a European law that if you don't want to work for someone you don't have to work for them. Who wants someone working for them who doesn't want to be in that situation? So I would hazard that even if the contract goes Alpine's way, Piastri will not drive for Alpine. He goes, Ricardo is free. Ricardo will either leave the sport or become a test driver possibly for 
Ferrari, I'm thinking. I don't think Mick Schumacher will get picked up by another team. I think Alpha Tauri will release Gasly. Gasly will go to Alpine because Gasly French. He would be a great fit there. And that Gasly's place at Alpha Tauri will be taken up either by Colton Herter on the outside or more likely Liam Lawson because it will cost them a lot less. There are so many variables. There's such a knock-on effect. The chances are what I've just said is 100% wrong. But that's how I reason it out. I have to say, if Piastri does end up driving for Alpine, I'm going to have to pay some kind of forfeit, and I would invite our listeners to suggest what that forfeit is. (laughs) (laughs) Be imaginative. In the meantime, we've got a few minutes to talk about other aspects in Formula One. The Belgian Grand Prix wasn't terribly exciting. Unusually, was it, Sarah? Well, that's arguable. If you're a Verstappen fan, you probably would have found it exciting. He did come back up from 14th place. So anyone that was a huge fan of Verstappen probably would have enjoyed the excitement of him overtaking cars lap by lap. But other than that, once he took the lead, it it all sort of all looked after itself in terms of the podium. Well, Ferrari were up there, actually, but they didn't quite get both of them on the podium. Yeah, so other than that, probably you're right. Not a lot of excitement going on. Fancy... Verstappen leading the race by lap 12. That is exceptional. Mm. And when he passed Perez for that position, it was clear that Perez wasn't letting him pass. He just flew past him. He just drove past him as if Perez was in a, a GP2 or an F2 car. It was insane. Verstappen's yeah, f- really found his form now, hasn't he? He's always been good, but... That was exceptional, wasn't it? Yeah, he's an exceptional driver in a dominant car. And as we've seen, you know, on a few occasions before, when a driver like that, you know, Lewis Hamilton in many of recent years, Mercedes, you know, when those when a driver like that starts in the middle of the pack, you expect them to get up to the sharp end before halfway through the race. But the very sharp end, that was some achievement, yeah. Absolutely, no. It wasn't a surprise that Verstappen got himself into the lead of the race and let's remember that while Sainz started the race on pole position that was an artifact of a grid penalty that Verstappen had got the Ferrari did not have the pace of the Red Bull fair point so yeah I think it wasn't a terribly surprising result but it was a result that underlined you know how dominant Verstappen is as a driver at the moment and how much of a lead the Red Bull has in performance and you know what I would say if Max Verstappen does win the championship this year which is looking very likely it's nice to know that he genuinely actually deserves it yeah he was just full of so much controversy and you know it's Mm, a lot of people still have a bad taste in their mouth from that so if he does win It will be well done. And I read that Christian Horner was like, he said that Verstappen is in a purple patch of his career. And I guess now he is. But last year, a little bit more arguable. Yeah, I, mm, uh, I think mm. that, that's exactly right. You know, yes, he won it last year. He probably shouldn't have done. But there's no doubt that if he does win it this year, he absolutely deserves it. Did you hear that thing? I read this somewhere this week that Max occasionally gets bored during the race. He's doing so well. And to keep him entertained, the Red Bull pit crew mess with him. And at one point, they changed his readout 
on his steering wheel to a different language, to Japanese or hmm. something like this. Now, I find this very hard to believe, but it seems to be uh, truthful, what I've said, but I just think, really, would you take those sorts of risks when you're vying for a championship? Would you do it during a race? No. I could see they do it during practice. I could see they do it at some other points of the weekend. I don't think they do it during a race. That's uh, crazy, really. Uh, yeah. You know, respect if they do <laughs> yeah. uh, for having the gumption to pull off those kind of mid-race shenanigans. But yeah. right, I'm going to have a quick look at the Formula One news to see if that announcement about Piastri and the contract recognition board has happened before we finish recording this segment. Oh, Whilst yeah, I'm up. doing that, you two. What's going to happen at Zandvoort this weekend? Who's going to win? Anyone who's gone there to party. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dutch partying at Zandvoort. That's a win. Yeah, I'm sure it will be one of the races of the year from a fan-fun point of view. I wish I was uh, there. I Sarah, yeah, talking about the actual racing, who's going to win this weekend? What's going on? Well, from a fan perspective, they're all probably going to be gunning for the stuff and won't they? Yeah. They're all being bright orange. So you'd be hard-pressed not to say that Verstappen will win. (laughs) Not my preferred option, but I think he'll probably win. Yeah, not my preferred option either. I mean, fair play, he deserves it if he wins. But I I just want to see some relief for the Mercedes team. I want Lewis or George to get a win. I still stand by my comment that I think George will get a win in that car before Before Lewis Lewis does. does. Yeah, Yeah. Well, we'll see, we'll see. To your predictions of that, in the current driver standings, George Russell is in fifth place on 170 points and Lewis Hamilton is in sixth place on 146 points. So George Russell has been outperforming Lewis this year. Mm. So you never know. Should we talk for a moment, quickly, about Lewis? Lewis occasionally looks defeated, doesn't he? He's not going to call time on his race career. He's going to give it one more season, isn't he? Probably. Did you see that Fernando Alonso actually slagged him off in the middle of the race? Oh, and yeah, he said, oh, he said, <laughs> Alonso said, I once, I think, yeah, Lewis Hamilton. Um, oh, he, said, he said he, 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 said he didn't, know, didn't know how to take. Yeah, and yeah. that Lewis Hamilton, you know, he's only used to driving from out in front, so... You know, and then Hamilton came out and said, well, it's nice to know how he really feels. Yeah. <laughs> Much as I love late period Mark II or Mark III Alonso, it was heat at the moment. It was a stupid and obviously <laughs> entirely wrong thing to say. You know, Lewis Hamilton is clearly not a driver who only knows how to win from the front. He's a great battler and overtaker and he's very clean yeah. in his doing that. Great. And he messed up on Sunday. He made a mistake. To his credit, he said, I made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. You you can't fault that. Zog, I have to say, do you remember my message to you before the start of the Belgian Grand Prix where I sent you a message saying, hmm, Alonso and Lewis, this is going to get dirty. You were quite right about that. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Didn't take long for that to blow up, did it? Yeah. That was a shame. (laughs) Yeah. So whilst making predictions about the future is very difficult, occasionally you can get it right, as I did then. Maybe I'm right about the whole Piastri thing. We'll find out. And chances are, in between the moment we finish recording this right now and the day that it's published on Thursday, we will have those answers. You have the news, yeah. Yeah. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Have a lovely West London time. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. And uh, (laughs) we'll see you for the next show in two weeks, right? See you then. That's correct. Okay, bye for now. Bye for now.
Gareth Jones on speed, news defecation. According to the latest figures released by WarrantyWise's annual reliability index, the Land Rover Range Rover has been judged the most unreliable of used cars. This claim is of course countered by the view that most other car users feel that the Range Rover is one of the most reliable cars on the road. In that you can rely on a Range Rover driver to take up more space, use more fuel, probably park on pavements, and consider that everyone else on the road has to get out of their way. Joining us right now to talk road cars, the world's most famous Zog impressionist, Alex Goy. Hi, Zog. Hey, Alex. How are you, man? <laughs> yeah. Hi. Hi. I'm good. It's been a lovely summer living in my hyper-insulated flat. I've melted on more than one occasion. But you did manage to escape somewhere rather cooler recently, didn't you, I think? Uh, well, it wasn't necessarily cooler. It was just a lot higher up. Uh, I went to Scotland and back in a Mercedes-AMG EQS 53. A lecky car. Lecky car. Big lecky car tuned by Amge. Yeah, it was an experiment because when Tesla first launched its supercharging network, there was this whole thing of, oh, well, you can now drive from London to Edinburgh only using electricity. And it was all very twee, but that was only using the Tesla network. And there were loads of things about, I don't want to say 10 years ago, but... So around that time frame, remember you did a big trip in a Nissan Leaf a thousand years ago, Gareth, didn't you? I drove from London to Liverpool in around 2014. Yeah. That took about yeah. 11 hours. But what, yeah. what was it four years ago, Zog, you and I drove from Land's End to John O'Groats in an electric yeah. Hyundai Kona. We didn't quite break the record. We missed it by two and a quarter hours or something, but we were pretty close to the record. Yeah, could have done better. Very, yeah. bit, very disappointing. But how did you find the recharging network in Scottish land? It was absolutely fine until we got to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> So car arrived with 80% charge. I met the crew, so we were shooting it for Carfection. I met the crew in, uh, where did I meet them? Where does he live? Donnington. Donnington's where I met them. Donnington Services, very glamorous. Lovely wee stop there, actually. Lovely Lou. <laughs> Went to Leeds for the first high-speed charge. There's an IMT charger there, which was great, except the fact it didn't work. So oh. straight out the gate, the most reliable, bestest thing ever. I was on the phone to them going, how do I get... I just want to tap my card and give you money. This shouldn't be difficult. Now, well, it's a lot easier if you download the apps. I don't want to download the f***ing app. I want to give you money and get about my day. Anyway, got that sorted. Then Gretna Green, there's an Ionity charger there. So that was nice and easy. That was just in. There was another charger there that was supposed to be tap and go, but refused to charge two cars at the same time, thus negating the point of it being a charger. But thankfully, there was an Ionity one there, so I just plugged it in and went. Ionity is notoriously expensive, but I wasn't paying the bill, so I didn't mind that much. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is mm. a premium service. It is. They can recharge up to, was it 350 kilowatts? Is that the. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Some big. Big, big, big. What big, was the fastest charge rate we got, Zog? 42 when we did it, wasn't it? That sounds about right, but I think I honestly will do 150 if memory serves. But they can, I think on the constant they'll do 350, but over here okay. they're 150. Ah, bloody Brexit. But still, it's quite quick. You know, yeah. the battery in the car was 108 kilowatt hours and it can take up to 200 kilowatt charging. So it would fill itself quite quickly and quite neatly. The only problem with it was is that Scotland has this amazing network. It's called Charge Place Scotland. Aye. And you download an app and it'll show you where all the charges are. 
and you can program a route to them. You can get Google to send you from where you are to the charger. It's all very clever, right? Tiny problem. There aren't many proper fast chargers. There aren't many 150 kilowatt chargers. On the first day, I visited seven chargers. One was in the wrong place on the app, so it was next to useless. One was broken. One worked, another worked. Then after the day's shooting, I went to plug the car in because we were staying in different places because of logistical reasons. There was a charger right next to my hotel. That didn't work. Um So I rang Charge Place Scotland. They said, ah, yes, we are aware that this one doesn't work. Sorry, the other plugs on there won't do your car. Of course they won't. It's all right. There's one round the corner at this climbing centre. Fine. So I'm driving the massive Merc, and it's basically a double driveway, and someone's badly parked a Renault Zoe in front of the charging stick. So the charging stick, they park nose on, because that's where the charge thing is. The charging stick was in a corner, and the cable wasn't long enough to reach the other side of my car because it was in the rear it was it was just it was rage inducing Mm. couldn't do that one so then went to find another one at this point i was on like 60 miles range the nearest one was 20 miles away (laughs) um i was beginning to panic but also i got the car at 8 30 that morning and at this point it was about midnight because it was proper summer so we'd been shooting until the dregs of sunlight and then eventually yes i found a 50 kilowatt charger that worked but in order to charge the car up to 100% for the full day's shoot the next day, three hours, yeah, yeah. well, uh, it was not fun. Yeah, so yeah. that was raging juicing. The next day, the charge network was largely fine. It's just there's more thought needs to be had on positioning of charges. Like the car, absolutely brilliant. It's really fast, really quiet. I could listen to my podcast. It had the hyper screen, which if you don't have the night pack, which I had, is like a 10 grand options, massive slab of screen. It's ridiculous. I loved it. If you can afford it, do it. Uh, some people are like, oh, it's rubbish, too much touchscreen. No, it's great. Like, it actually works. It's brilliant. But charge bays currently are kind of retrofitted to car parks because car parks already exist. So it's easier to put one in the other than create one around the other, especially yeah, yeah. in areas of natural beauty, like at Loch Ness, which is where I discovered my biggest problem of day two. There's that There are lots of crappy little like 10 5 kilowatt hour charges on sticks that would have been useless for us because i am fully aware the use case i had was we need as much charge as possible as quickly as possible all the time to then drive to these amazing roads and and play but instead the fast charger was in a corner so if one car was parked at one end of it you couldn't use the other chargers if your charge hole was on the wrong side of the car so i had to wait for a bloke Mm. to finish charging risking a parking fine because i was waiting for him to finish And then, of course, there was the risk that what if my charge hole wasn't quite in the right place for the cable? So we need a regular slot for charging, for one, and longer charge cables. That's the biggest thing. The way I'd do it with charging points, I would make them circular. You'd have a small circle of charge towers and the car parking spaces for that fanning out around them. You know, that would be the most optimum solution again it's, it's one of those things where you can't build something like that in yeah. places that already exist if yeah. that makes sense so yeah, take yeah, up yeah. A, a lot of space exactly. but yeah, yeah, yeah. it was amazingly frustrating and then the next day we got up super early drove to the kyleskew bridge the film will look incredible trust me wow and it was time to go home about 10 o'clock and again every charge point i just needed like 20 minutes on a 50 kilowatt charger to get myself more than i think 100 miles range to get to the next fast charger yeah and every single one was broken 
Damn it. Like mm. everyone. One just wouldn't talk to the car. One was just broken. And I met this lovely old couple who said, look, you've got enough to get to Perth. So go to Perth and there's a fast charger there. And that was when I realised that a like, bit of road, lovely. Like, Scottish road network's incredible. Lots of speed cameras, so be careful for those. Oh, yes, I've been caught out uh, on the <coughs> way back. Yeah, I was caught Lots out. Lots of speed cameras. I haven't been caught in Scotland. Uh, or at least I haven't had a letter. <laughs> but... That was then, I think, one o'clock in the afternoon because I'd been bouncing around from charger to charger. And I was like, oh, it's all right. I'll be back in London by midnight. No, Scotland's massive. Scotland's it really, really is. Big. There's a lot it of really places in Britain which aren't England, and most of them are Scotland. Fortunately, it's also overwhelmingly really beautiful. Yeah. So it's an entirely good thing that there's so much of it because you just get yeah. more amazing yeah. It's Hills, all really pretty, all but it's, also, it's just massive. Like I, I, I got my Perth charger oh, yeah. and was like, right, next big charger, Gretna Green, let's head down there. Got there, it was eight o'clock. I was like, where has my entire day gone? This is ludicrous. Mm. And then, of course, the battle of, do I, from Gretna Green, go straight to Beaconsfield, where there's another Ionity charger, because I need to be up the next day to do some extra bits for this film very early. Or do I stop halfway and then guarantee I have enough charge? Because Beaconsfield was 303 miles away and the car had 330 miles of charge. Dun, dun, dun. Gentlemen, gentlemen, that was Ooh. one of the tensest drives I've ever had. Huh? My past self would be amazed to hear me say this. Thankfully, there were lots of 50 mile an hour speed limits. And hopefully lots of lorries you could slipstream behind. Lots or of lorries, like, lots of yeah. Friday night traffic because it was rush hour and people going up and down the country. So, yes, I got to Beaconsfield at like one in the morning or midnight or something and plugged it into my Odyssey charger and sat in the car going, I'm still 30 miles from my house, but I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> Nearly there. Well, yeah. do you know what? All this rather leads me to something I was hoping to talk about on this programme. And that is the alternative to electric cars for the near future. Because whilst we all agree here, the electric cars available at the moment are sorted bits of kit, largely. The infrastructure that supports them, you get like a 50% hit rate on it working as advertised. Over the last couple of months, I've spent a lot of time with electric cars. Way more than I had in the last, like, five years. Mm. And every time, there either aren't enough chargers... Or they don't work. Every time, there's always a problem. If you don't have a charger at home, which a lot of people don't, I live in a flat. Gareth, your house is on a street, so you can't yep. you can't have a box outside it. Nope. Unless you have a plug at home, you're largely knackered. Yep. Or you could drive a car that runs on synthetic fuel. Hopefully all cars, please. Yeah. So, would you know about the chemistry of synthetic fuels? Is the nearest thing we've got to a proper chemist on the show? Well, my understanding is that when we talk about synthetic fuels, we mean fuels, you know, petrol, diesel-type fuels, uh, that have been made in a chemical plant, usually starting with, I think, hydrogen and carbon monoxide. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. historically, this has been something that, for example, in, in the Second World War, when certainly Germany, they, other countries may have done this, but Germany produced a lot of liquid fuel, starting with coal as a feedstock. Yeah, yeah. You can use coal and you can heat it up and get carbon monoxide and come up with hydrogen and you can create all kinds of synthetic 
liquid fuel that can go in an internal combustion engine. And to some extent, I suppose we might combine, we might sort of roll biofuel and synthetic fuels together as, yep. the, as these are both prospects. Yeah, yeah. They're an alternative way of getting the same kind of liquid fuel into our fuel tanks and into our internal combustion engines as we're used to with the old fossil fuel thing, but with the prospect of a lower carbon footprint. If the energy that you're putting into making your synthetic fuel is, is green energy. low, yeah. yeah, yeah. And if when you're making your biofuel, again, the energy inputs are low enough and the carbon that's gone into it in the first place is carbon that's come from the atmosphere. You can carbon have a, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty much, a, you know, you have a carbon neutral way of mm. getting liquid fuel. So the kind of the big headline, the bullet points are, well, there's enormous potential here. This seems to be a wonderful prospect. This sounds great. And we will undoubtedly be using a lot more biofuel and synthetic fuel in the future. But the obstacles to just flipping over and replacing a lot of the fossil fuel you use at the moment with synthetic and with biofuel, it's still quite tricky. You know, there are a lot of problems to be overcome. The efficiency isn't high enough. The expense is, is too high. And Sounds like the early days of electric cars. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And, and you know, things will get more efficient. From what I read, it seems to me like algae is the vector, the route that may have the most potential. And when I say algae, I mean using algae, you know, similar to the stuff you find floating in ponds, mm. uh, using that instead of corn or other kind of crops. You grow algae and turn that into fuel rather than growing corn and turning that into fuel. And this has all kinds of advantages, such as one of the downsides of the corn ethanol biofuel thing is that you have to use a lot of land that you could otherwise be growing food on. Yeah. Considering British farming PLC is having to throw away a bunch of food at the moment because of reasons for things that politicians refuse to talk about, yes. might it be a good idea to grow corn on it to burn as petrol? Yeah, well... Mm. Oh, well, that's a whole other thing. But fortunately, this particular short-term snafu won't persist for too long, let's say. But in the bigger picture worldwide, you know, it's probably not a great idea to use valuable agricultural land to grow corn that you're then going to turn to fuel. If you could do it with a load of algae in a yep. tank that is also more efficient at producing the kind of hydrocarbons you need. I remember Audi were doing some research into this. One of the first car companies doing research into this where they were using a combination of algae and, I won't say human waste, that sounds wrong, but rubbish dumps, basically. And they were able to create fuel from that. That seemed like, wow, that's a double whammy. That's a, Seems you know, like a real magic bullet, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I don't know how that went. I also remember back in 2009, I borrowed a Lotus, a Lotus Exige 270E tri-fuel, which Lotus Engineering oh. had developed. The tri-fuel cars, the ones that could run on, was it bioethanol? Or pure petrol. petrol, or a combination of both, yeah. or, and of course synthetic fuels. And the major modifications that they had to do, apart from the timing and remapping the ECU to work with different types of fuel, was fairly straightforward. They simply uprated all the hoses on the engine, because non 
is this the right term, Zognom, hydrocarbon fuels, you know, this non-traditional fuels, not petrol and diesel, they are more corrosive to pipes and things. So they had to develop a more resilient hose Well, type. it's to do with things that are more specific to particular plastics and particular rubbers and particular fuels than a broader issue. But yeah, basically mm. a rubber or plastic pipe that's good for petrol that will not be affected by petrol might be affected by ethanol for example yeah yeah all the pipes have been replaced with silicon i believe in the car as opposed to whatever it is that they they use these days it seemed fairly straightforward and i thought oh this is really intriguing but of course not every car even if we switch to synthetic fuels right now could run on that this is again something that we're going to have to phase in as of course we now get e10 and e5 fuels not every car out there can run on those if you don't use v power be careful what car you're put like 99 percent of the cars on the road will be absolutely fine using regular fuel but if yeah, yeah. It, it's it's for like pre 2004 cars and some motorbikes simply because it might eat through some pipes like you should be fine mm. yeah it's not if, if you're in a pinch you get away with it Maybe take the risk. Uh-huh. But not good long-term repeated use. Yeah, I, I wouldn't exactly. do that. Yeah, yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. don't put anything but V-Power in your C-Type. Uh, I mm. remember back in the but, day when I had my Lancia HPE, when they stopped selling leaded fuel, there was an awful lot of concern that you wouldn't be able to run older cars at all, which relied on leaded fuel. But they did develop, I think it was VMAX was the first one, or whatever it's called, one of the first modern fuels which had all the characteristics of a fuel with lead in it you know higher benzene levels is that right amongst other things less cancer (laughs) i don't know that it put more benzene in because benzene is quite nasty stuff i don't know know the chemistry but i don't know but it's uh, oh no well no benzene is great stuff if you want to burn it or you know put it in an engine it's terrible stuff if you want to don't drink it put it near people yeah, don't gargle it, for instance. What if you want to burn it near people? <laughs> oh, it's absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. That's fine. All right, cool. Gentlemen, I think we will leave it there before this conversation gets any sillier. I'm, I'm sure it will. Zog, thank you. Good talking to you both. Alex, thank you, my friend. Bye. We will talk more about the future of cars in a future episode of Gareth Jones on Speed. See ya! For information on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to GarethJones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Wizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!